Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhop. With Tamson and Dan, read the paper Thanksgiving 2021 edition. We're uh, actually a day early. It's Saturday. It's, it's also November uh, 27th. It's also special. This is the 250th episode. This is the 250th episode. So we have brought in a, a huge cast. You're beginning to hear them already. It's uh, a cast of thousands. Would you like to introduce the cast, Benson? The cast, would I like to? In what order? How about age order? Okay, go ahead. Okay. We have Hasbong. <laughs> have you have? Yes, there he is. Weighing in at six months. And 20 pounds. <laughs> uh, a man of few words, but plenty of dribble. And across from him... We have Pepper Jean Abuhoff, and uh, okay. she's about uh, 14, 14 months, months old. 14 oh my months. goodness. Same she's quite grown up. As has he. She's All right. like a helicopter. Then we have Nico Hasbon. Well, well right? let's go to the parents of Pepper. Which are Nico and Granger. Nico and Granger. Hello, thanks for having right. us. Hey. And then we have the parents of Pepper, Zeke and Noel. And Hello. Hello. And then we have Sadie Abuhoff. Yes. And this is the uh, Thanksgiving crew. This is because it's the Thanksgiving edition. This was the mayhem that we had on Thursday for Thanksgiving, which has continued for the next few days. Well, it's also yes. the Hanson and Dan read the paper All Stars. Yes. The okay. Stars. <laughs> we have assembled the All Stars <laughs> for uh, the. Number two hundred and fifty. It is a miracle that we've gotten, given all the sleep schedules, that we're all sitting around. We almost had to do it without Hazi. But the great thing is that Pepper not only can you know say something once in a while in her own language, but she does a great impression of Hazi. So sometimes we don't need him. She can just do Hazi. Fantastic. You can't tell him about it. Yeah. I mean, uh, fortunately, Dan got his nap. So we're ready to roll. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Okay. Right. So here we go. What are, well, what are well, we're going to talk about Thanksgiving. We had a great Thanksgiving, yeah. and it was uh, the historic meeting of the two cousins. Basically, that was the big theme. And uh, I don't know. Do you think one has noticed the other? I, I believe Pepper has noticed uh, Hazi. Yeah. Hazi right? or Pepper's a big fan of Hazi's cheeks, <laughs> but it doesn't always get the aim correct when trying to touch them. And I think we've decided that Hazi is starting to imitate Pepper as well. Oh, well good. Yeah. Well, there was that point when Pepper was doing impressions of Hazi. She went into a corner by some toys, and she was lying on her back and sort of uh, waving her limbs, or, you know, sporadically. And uh, that was clearly a Hazi impression. Well, she seems mystified. Yeah. Hazi is the same size as she is. But doesn't walk around or run around. <laughs> Why are you lying on your tummy all the time? That's right. And Pepper, who has been walking for, what, four weeks? Three weeks? Four weeks? Longer than that. Uh, five weeks? The point is she yeah, hasn't stopped. Two months? Maybe eight weeks, yeah. I don't know. It seems like eight weeks because she hasn't stopped walking. She just started walking and she's motoring around like crazy. Anyway, it was a great Thanksgiving. Three generations. That's right, at least. In one spot, which is, uh, we usually... Historically, over the years, we often have three generations. Well, we've got it again. And uh, we're back to, <laughs> we're back. to all three. We're back to three generations. Okay. Yeah. And uh, we had some good food. Yes. And, you know, everything went relatively smoothly. And, well, yes, we're still talking to each other yeah. several days later. And so, so it's, it's something. Oh, all right. Pepper. Pepper is yes, helping pepper. out. Yes, yes. Okay. So, uh, where do you want to go next? Well, I think uh, we want to talk about hockey a little bit, because Sadie and I did uh, go to a hockey game yesterday. Yeah, which which I must say that mainly this week, we just sit around and look at the children. That's right. Okay, but 
There was a slight break from that when you and Sadie headed into Philly. Yes, to watch the Flyers. So Sadie, why don't you speak to that, but you also have an article about that. Yes, I think for my segment, we need like a little do-do-do-do. It's Hockey Corner. Hockey. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because that's my role. Yeah. Um. So we went to a Flyers game yesterday, and very convenient to go to. You just drive on down 95, make a right turn, and you're there. Yeah. So that was nice. Yeah. Um, flames on the... On the, the scoreboard. Well, the scoreboard. We cannot stop talking about that. The there scoreboard belts the flames. A little. Yes. I will say the hockey game was interesting, but the scoreboard held its own in terms of yeah. interest. It was and uh, exciting. Gritty was as advertised. He dressed up like a turkey for Thanksgiving. He was very fun. That's the Flyers mascot, Gritty. Yes. Yeah, because nobody in the world knows who Gritty is. Very few of our listeners are into the Flyers. Now, if you know anything about NHL, you know Gritty. Yeah. Anyway. Um... Is an exciting game. Lots of goals were scored, which and, is always what you're hoping and for. And I should say, yeah, you know, look, we're in the pandemic, but it was a capacity crowd. Uh, you, uh, they didn't require that you were vaccinated, honestly. Um, it's everything you would hope for from an outing. They had a huge Christmas tree. Yeah. They had all the food you could eat. Yeah. Big crowd. Everyone Wait a minute, was, all the food was food free? No. 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 But like, no, but there were many you know, yeah. possibilities. Yes. Okay. And, and uh, it's a great game and uh, a very well-behaved Philly crowd, which right. you don't always get. I did want to say they were all wearing masks which, yeah. pretty much, but they weren't drinking, which means they weren't wearing masks too much. But, but uh, you know, that's a pretty rowdy crowd. Yeah. Uh, but they were following the rules. So, you know, it was interesting to be in that kind of environment. We haven't been in that environment for a long time. It was a lot of energy, a lot of fun. But uh, not so much in Montreal, Sadie, where they are complaining bitterly, I understand, about their hobby. Well... As we all know, hockey is part of everyone's blood in Canada. Um, and this article is about how hockey is not as prevalent in Montreal as it used to be. And the feeling is that everyone loves hockey the same amount, but they're not producing as many NHL stars as they used to do in years past. So the kids don't play the kids, hockey? The pipeline is drying up a little bit. Yeah. Um, so it's unfortunate for them. They're upset about it. It seems to rank among the issues, sim- uh, among the you know concerns like climate uh, change really? and um, issues with the supply chain. They put it right up there with those issues because hockey is part of their the fabric of their community. Um, so they're very upset. There were moments last season where there wasn't even a Quebecian, a Quebecer. Is that the, how they say it? There wasn't the even a person from Quebec on the team, which is very unfortunate. Well, did they say there's more players now from Sweden? <coughs> yes. Than from Canada in the NHL? Is that right? Not Canada, just Quebec. Oh, Quebec. I'm sorry. Okay. Canada represents 43% of the NHL players. The United States represents 26% of the NHL players. Okay. Um, but then Quebec is only a fraction of that um, Canadian portion country. of the Canadian yeah. players. Ottawa has the largest amount. Well, it, it makes a difference. No, sorry, Ontario has the It makes a difference because the French Canadians were always dominant. There was a lot of French being spoken. Not so much anymore, I guess. So they're unhappy. They even point to a child's book, a children's book that's popular in uh, Quebec about someone, a child ordering a hockey sweater, his mother ordering a hockey, hockey sweater for him in red, white, and blue for the Les Habitants. And the hockey sweater arrives, and it is blue and white, which is the maple leaf's color. Mm. And this is 
very upsetting to everyone involved. So that is apparently a very traditional children's story in um, <laughs> in Montreal. And, you know, the vigor behind that seems to be, you know, waning at this point. So that's upsetting. Okay. All right. So uh, there was an article about uh, swimming uh, in Australia, which uh, actually Graver initiated by, by asking me if I did I happen to see that article, and I had. And it would be of great interest. So uh, go ahead, Graver. So this guy, Damien Cave, moved to Australia, not being a big swimmer himself. He swam recreationally once in a while at most. And he found himself in this swim community where a big segment of the community would volunteer as lifeguards. And he found himself thrust into the role as one of these volunteer lifeguards in training. And he learned a lot about himself and about swimming and about community while he was doing it. So I thought it was really interesting to hear about because I'm someone who's, you know, I'm not like a great swimmer, but I swam since I was a kid. So it's interesting to hear it from the perspective of someone else, but also just about swimming in a totally different environment and as part of his journey into another culture. What do you think about it, Nico? I thought it was fun that he talked about just how he was getting better at the sport and not trying to really, you know, compete in any real way. Just be... What do they say in there? Proficient. Proficient, Proficient yeah. is the key word. Yeah. Well, so. well, you were saying that uh, the beach that he was learning in, one of the impressive things about this is he's learning to swim in, in the Bondi ocean. Bondi Beach. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry, what's the beach? Bondi Beach. And you were saying that's and a that's tough like, place to swim. Yeah, it's a, it's a famously tons of currents at Bondi Beach and tons of lifeguards because a lot of people drown there. So really? the fact that you are learning to swim there seemed really impressive to me. There's what, a famous reality show about all yeah. the saves that happen there. And what did, he had to get his time for, was it 400 meters under nine minutes or something like that? Yeah. And you were saying in a regular pool, that's not much, but in, uh, in the ocean, it's, it's a yeah. bigger compliment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So well, the other thing about this article was, you know, he was indoctrinating his kids. He felt that they were learning quite a bit uh, in the Australian culture, something they couldn't pick up in the U.S. culture as easily. Because, you know, this idea of proficiency and whatever. But, uh, well, his daughter took good. His son did not. And what sport is he playing now? Water polo. There you go. So, uh, you know, even though uh, he thinks it's a great thing that they're swimming and uh, life-saving, water polo. That's the default out there in Australia. But that's, uh, oh. That's right, Hazzy. That's Hazzy. Hazzy weighing in. Everyone should swim and play water polo. Yes. All right. Well, uh, listen, it's, it's impressive. The guy obviously is a pretty good swimmer at this point and takes guts to learn that way. Okay, Tamsin. Disney. Disney. So, no, this is not Disney. This is Ding, Ding, Ding. Oh, I'm sorry. Museum Update. Yeah. Okay. Uh, article in the Wall Street Journal Review section uh, about uh, new exhibition opening up in uh, New York's Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And it's uh, called Inspiring Walt Disney, the Animation of French Decorative Arts. Uh, so it just points out it's something we've all probably noticed uh, throughout uh, our watching of Disney cartoons, right? So every once in a while you see something you say, oh, that looks familiar. I think I've seen that in an art history book somewhere. Yeah, yeah. it happens to me all the time. And uh, as a matter of fact, other people have noticed, including the Met curator Wolf Burk Burchard or Burkard, and uh, they put together this show that has the you know the French decorative. His basic theme is that a lot of it comes from the Rococo period in French art, 
Okay, so uh, you see here a um, depiction of Lumiere. Lumiere. And uh, how that's inspired by a uh, an actual French candlestick uh, from the 18th century. Yeah, well, how's he looking? And, oh, and also, uh, you know, they point. So they're comparing the you know French art, uh, largely you know from the 18th century, and uh, and also Rococo uh, revival and a little bit of 16th century as well, um, and and uh, showing what inspired. The Disney artists and designers in uh, creating these different uh, characters, and um, you know, so that's that looks like a lot of fun. There's um, decorative arts. There's uh, like the candlestick. There's dishes. There's tapestries, and uh, here there's also here's a scene from um, Beauty and the Beast. Okay, with a gentleman pushing a young lady in a swing. All right, and so that immediately brings to mind that famous uh, Fragonard painting of on the swing, right, uh, where the girl is kind of joyfully kicking off her um, slipper. Perhaps suggestively so. Su- well, suggestively yeah. so because there seems to be somebody um, opposite her, perhaps looking up, up her skirt. Oh, no, not, him, well, him, Disney him. wasn't using that. Exactly. It's 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 in fact, was from uh, a very famous hmm. um, interior uh, in art. Well, um, anyway, so that would be fun to see that. Uh, so it uh, starts December 10th, and if you're in the mood to actually get back into going to a museum, that might be something that will appeal to the whole family. Yes, Hazi, here we see. <laughs> you, know, our, you know, there's going to be a lot of people say, oh, is the net dumbing things down to bring in... Uh, the crowds, and I wouldn't call it dumbing things down, but I, I think it's uh, the Met is uh, pandering. Pandering? Yeah. No, well, I, well, I don't They're always broadening their appeal. Broadening their appeal. It, but again, it just uh, points out how very much art is a part of our mm-hmm. lives, even uh, you know the more entertaining parts. Okay. All right, uh, Zeke and uh, Noel. If we can get Noel in the area, she's tracking. Uh, we'll chasing down our uh, audio intern here. Yeah. All right. All right. Our audio intern. So Zeke. Yeah. We've been lo- looking at London a lot because we've been watching Ted Lasso on television, which is very good. We like Ted, Ted Lasso. Lasso. Family yeah. entertainment. A charming show about a charming. Uh, transplant of the American South into London and having a, a bit of a culture shock along the way. Well, who else is having that experience? Who else but Louisiana's own Popeyes uh, that has opened one restaurant, I believe, in uh, the UK and plans to open several more. And at least from this reporting, it appears they're having a, a bit of bit of trouble uh, crossing the pond in terms of the understanding of what they serve. They've got these things that you and I would call biscuits, 
but you know the British they don't they don't understand those as biscuits. They would say that cookies are biscuits. I don't know what they use the word cookies for, but it's not that. So they look at uh, buttermilk biscuits and they say, "Is that a scone?" And then they bite into it and they find it doesn't and taste like a scone. Instead of scone, they say scone. Scone, yes, yeah, sure, a scone. Yeah, what is the <laughs> what is the quote there? Here, it looks like a scone. Victoria Ubochi said, but it doesn't taste like one. And in this article, they really make it seem like the the British people are totally baffled, totally unable to process the concept of buttermilk biscuits. Why is well, it only doesn't scone? taste like a scone because it's not as sweet. As a scone, right? Other than that, well, it's not as dry either, right? That, or, or that's, it's dense. It's, 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 it depends on the scone you eat. Well, the other, um, thing, the other thing is you don't serve fried chicken with a scone. Ted Lasso says that a scone sucks all the moisture right out of your mouth. So that's, <laughs> I think that's what these people are expecting. And they're also expecting to be served with hot tea. But instead, it's being served with fried chicken. Um, and I don't know what these what these British folks' experience is with fried chicken. But I think they find the whole thing a bit odd. No, there is a lot of fried chicken over there. Sure. There is, but it's not to give them a leg up into understanding Uh-oh, this very challenging man. Weighing in, Hazi sees trouble with the biscuits. But I think they'll figure it out. But, 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 but let me just say this, okay? Yeah. I know we're in Pennsylvania, and chicken and waffles is a thing, uh-huh. okay? But many of us uh, have grown up in places where we don't eat chicken and waffles, so you know it's not just see, the UK. See, would you please read the marketing report? The marketing report? Yeah. The focus group report, where the guy says, "If you know, we did a focus group and see what they found." Oh yeah, that's a, what does it say? Something like, uh, "Why are you oh, yeah. giving me? Why a... are you giving me a scone with chicken? I have no idea what you are doing." But the next line is the best one. He says, "I guess if we ran with the research, we probably wouldn't have done it." If I'm honest, <laughs> <laughs> so they had, you want to hear from your marketing focus guy. group that says, "Look, this is this is really throwing these folks for a loop." Yeah. They, they don't know why these two items are necessary. They don't know what a biscuit is. They don't know how to pronounce it. That's, that's right out of Ted Lasso. The idea they go and they introduce it, they open the restaurant, and it doesn't work, and someone says, you know, if we, I guess if we had gone with the marketing report, we wouldn't have done it. But uh, there they are. There's but if, not, if, but it, if it's like Ted Lasso, it'll be a success despite all the odds. Yeah, I think, I think you know, they'll get a, this initially chilly reception, but they come around to it. At the end of the article, they quote someone who I think drove an hour to get to this restaurant. And they said it was a breath, a breath of fresh air. And they also said, I don't eat scones. So there are some folks who are probably tired of the tyranny of very uh, moistureless uh, baked goods over there and will welcome this new combination. Okay, I, I, what's so hard to welcome? Well, you, you it would seem know. to me if you bite into a um, fried chicken on a biscuit sandwich, you're immediately transformed. Well, it'll mm-hmm. work out the way I know all sensible. So uh, it's something to look forward to. All right. Ooh. I'm telling you, I'm working this Hazi character. All right. Any, anything else from... Uh... Yeah, did you have anything on... on uh, did you want to talk about Sure. One, one small thing here in the book review. Uh, they had, There's a review uh, by Juno Diaz of... All of the Marvels by Douglas Wolk. And uh, I thought this was just kind of a funny creation here. Apparently Douglas Wolk went to the trouble of reading every Marvel comic book, uh, which I think is some 27,000 issues. And, no, uh, no one could read that much. This, this guy says he did it. I mean, there 
It's, I think there's some trickiness to it. What exactly count? Marvel's published a lot of things over the years. What really counts? But since you read 27,000. You read 27. I mean, it's theoretically humanly possible, I guess. I haven't done the math on how long it takes to read each one of these. See, you're the opposite reaction to me. I was going to say Zeke's already read the 27,000 <laughs> issues. Where's his book? Uh, one of the funny things is that it, he's. I think this guy who wrote this, Douglas Wolk, has been quoted as saying that other people really don't have to do this. He doesn't recommend it. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't have to go through the whole thing. But having done it, yes, some observations uh, about Marvel, how it works, what, what's been consistent over the decades. Um, for example, uh, he says that uh, it's quoted here as, as describing the formula, the basic formula for Marvel stories as being monsters plus romance plus superheroes plus topicality. That's your formula for putting together the, the uh, unique Marvel brew that people seem to enjoy so much. Um, and Junior Diaz says that this is uh, a pretty good book. He seems to be recommending it. Uh, if anyone in your life in the holiday time is looking to learn more about the world of superhero comics, specifically Marvel, this could be uh, fun for them. I guess just warn them that the first couple yeah, chapters are a bit starts, slow. Starts a bit slow, slow, a bit dry. What, is it's it like even clo- you've got a scone at the beginning for the first two chapters, <laughs> and then it really turns into a buttermilk biscuit. Would, would people who enjoy reading comics... Enjoy reading this book, though. He claims that they would. He, he like, or, or is it for he somebody else? He claims that the appeal really, that it's a well enough written book that the appeal could bridge the gap between people who are both not terribly familiar with Marvel, uh, maybe have some interest in superhero comics, but just don't know a whole lot, and people who do know a whole lot. He thinks it'll appeal to both of them. Yeah, but will the people who just uh, who like comic books be? Well, your mom's asking. Distressed people? by the right. lack of. Uh, should mom? Should mom buy it for you for Christmas <laughs> or, or for her mother just to get her into Marvel? Which is which is it? There is a lack of pictures. If you want to learn about comics but you want pictures, you got to check out Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. That's a classic of uh, learning about the medium through the medium itself. The one yeah. thing I want to add is that. Part of what the book's doing is trying to make sense of all these stories together because they contra- constantly contradict each other. And that's been a big drive in comics yeah. recently. <laughs> but uh, happy Hazi here. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I, I think that uh, that's the part that I think the longtime comics readers will be into is like the history of the stories, like how the characters change over time. And if there really is one vision of Captain America, the Hulk, or if they just change every couple of years and it doesn't really coalesce. Well, that's been an issue in the movies because the last few movies are saying you know, they're just started going in these alternative stories like WandaVision and they're losing some of the consistency because they're creating these scenarios where dead characters come alive and, you know, anything goes. That's the promise that the new writer always says, well, but what if she wasn't dead? Yeah. yeah. And that always changes that things. That always kills you. What if she wasn't dead? Oh, is it? Does it resurrect you? Um, yeah, so it's that time of year, guys. We're getting uh, perilously close to Advent. Okay? Kind of starting the countdown to Christmas. And uh, Wall Street Journal has an article about the rise of the extreme Advent calendar, which I noticed myself this year. I'm a big fan of Advent calendars. And uh, for years, I've been buying these little Advent calendars for everybody in the vicinity, where you just uh, it's uh, you open a little door, and each day of the month you get a little piece of chocolate. 
Everybody likes that. Those right? are perfectly enjoyable. Uh, okay. Um, so anyway, for some reason I was going online and I was finding all these other kind of advent calendars uh, with all kinds of things. Beauty products. Uh, popcorn. Different flavors of popcorn. Uh, you know, different crazy things. And so here's an article about the very same thing. Um, and uh, a woman, Michelle Slatala, uh, writes about uh, she actually was confronting the extreme aspect because her husband asked whether they could um, buy from Douglas Dale Cannabis a marijuana themed advent calendar <laughs> of pre rolled joints to treat yourself and all your peeps to some giggles and smiles instead of another silent night. Oh Christmas okay. present. Apparently there's, uh, you know, there are beer advent calendars. Uh, I think uh, Tiffany has some crazy calendar that's $150,000. And uh, you get all kinds of marvelous uh, jewelry in it. Uh, Then, uh, oddly enough, this woman writing the article says, but isn't this terribly commercial? (laughs) And... um, you know, wanting to get back to a more pure form of advent calendar, apparently. But it turns out um, a Mr. Uh, uh, you don't need the name. Gerhard Lang says he invented, said he invented the advent calendar in 1903. And... Uh, he uh, had 24 holiday scenes cut apart with a grid of 24, and you would open it up and you'd see a little holiday verse, okay? By the 1920s, Lang's designs had perforated doors and windows to reveal religious pictures as well as a chocolate version, okay? And uh, truth be told, Lang was always in the business of selling, okay? It's always been a commercial venture, so this is silly to think of anything else. It might, it, one interesting thing is that apparently uh, during, uh, uh, during 1943, the, a, there was a German uh, advent calendar featuring pictures of German torpedoes sinking Allied ships and Germans blowing up Russian tanks uh, in uh, all the windows. So, you know, it's, uh, it's an interesting history. I, I will say that um, I do enjoy an advent calendar. And I usually try to, uh, you know, there are lots of different brands. Usually one of the German ones are the nicest and simplest. And I like the ones with just a little cute picture when you open the door. You know, nothing fancy, nothing cartoony, just a little, you know, plum pudding or a little, you know, mouse singing Christmas Maybe bells a little, or something like marijuana. that. And, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, a picture of marijuana. And I like it because during all the hubbub and madness leading up to Christmas, it's just a quiet little moment of opening that door and saying, a few more days, I can get through this. I can get through this. Merry Christmas. Well, I, I will tell you what I've been. How's he sitting in my lap once on his uh, advent calendar? He wants pictures of pacifiers. Which I think would be the best. One. He would go for that. 
Um, no, he needs a chewable advent calendar. Uh, yeah, he needs. Well, well, he would make it a chewable advent calendar. <laughs> uh, all right, so we're going to close uh, just to talk about Steve Sondheim for a minute. So Steve Sondheim passed away at the age of 91, I think. Now, you guys, uh, I'm directing this mostly at uh, Granger Zeke. And, uh, what's her name? Hey, what's her name? You guys have seen uh, how many Sondheim plays? Just a few, but you've heard all the music. I mean, you guys all saw a funny thing happen on the way before. Who saw that? I saw that. We saw it. Yeah. We, we also saw it. Okay, great. We saw a revival, oh. what do you think, uh, early 90s? <clears throat> Mom, you're dating us. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And we I know saw that Nathan Lane. Who, who saw Nathan Company? Lane. Nathan Lane. That saw, was a good performance. We saw Company. All of you guys saw Company? Did you no, saw I saw Company. All right. So you guys I think actually Nathan Lane. Lane wasn't at the performance. He was subbed for. But no. We saw Nathan Lane. The one we didn't see Nathan Lane in was The Producers. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. But that right. wasn't written by Sondheim, so you're okay for this okay. broadcast. Okay. Sorry. Um, yeah. So, look. We, wait, you're wait, all they, no, they've seen Gypsy. Have they seen Gypsy? Well, Sadie's seen Gypsy. Yeah. Right. I think Zeke's got to. Yeah. yeah. I just saw Revival Gypsy. All right. in the park with George. You guys are all over this. All Wait, over this. Uh, what's the In the Woods? Into the Woods? Into the Woods? You saw the movie. Yeah, that counts. Um, that yeah. counts. Yeah. And anybody seen... Oh, well, I forgot to count movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh... What's it what's with the what's the barber film? Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd. Bar- you, you saw, saw that the movie? movie? Yeah. What do you think of it? Okay. Okay. Well, the movie was a little odd. It was. It was. Uh, yeah. Uh, so in any event, uh, so the, a lot of covers and people uh, can point out to me right away. Three full pages of the New York Times. Obviously, he's, he's, you know, he's one of the great artists, if not the great artist of the last fifty years. Certainly, the great artist in musical theater. I mean, people have been writing about him for years and years and years, and it hasn't stopped. And one thing that, that struck me as interesting. I mean, we're obviously great fans, and, and he is a local guy. Assassins. He was raised. He was raised oh, good. in Doylestown. Yeah, he was raised in Doylestown. Well, I was going to get to the Oscar Hammerstein aspect of it because the Times has. Well, that's it. where he met Oscar Hammerstein. Yeah, so they, they, they talk a little bit more about that. I mean, that's the story that, you know, Sondheim, I guess, was missing a father figure. His uh, mother happened to be friendly with Oscar Hammerstein's wife. Uh, and somehow she, he got together. Uh, he got to sort of talk to Oscar Hammerstein and spend time with him, and he learned the craft of uh, writing shows, writing uh, lyrics, really. Hammerstein wrote lyrics. Um, and uh, they give and some more says, details. Yeah, if, if he became a, a, a writer of songs and music because he met Oscar Hammerstein. If Oscar Hammerstein been a had, plumber. had been a plumber, Steve Sondheim would have been a plumber, but a heck of a plumber because, uh, you know, he's a good student. But the way they get the details of that here in the Times. Apparently what... Um, Hammerstein did at a certain point after he saw, uh, you know, Sondheim went to the George School, which is in the area here in Pennsylvania, and he wrote a musical, The George School, and apparently Hammerstein said to him, it's the worst thing I've ever read. Uh, and, Harsh. And he said, I tell you what we'll do. I'll, you know, I didn't say it was untalented, Hammerstein. I said, I said it was terrible. If you want to know why it's terrible, I'll tell you. And he spent the afternoon going over it in detail, and he gave an assignment to Sondheim. He said, I want you to write four different musicals for me. I want you to... Adapt a good play into a musical. I want you to adapt a flawed play into a musical. I want you to adapt a story from another medium into a musical. And then I want you to write a musical from your own original story. And he did all four of these things. Um, and uh, he, he didn't finish all of them. And they certainly weren't successful. He was just a high school student. Uh, but it helped him quite a bit. And, so, and Hammerstein sort of went over it very carefully with him. Interestingly, when he adapted a story from another medium... Uh, he wrote a Mary Poppins musical, uh, but he never finished it, so uh, we've never seen that. 
Um, it, you know, it, it's funny. Sondheim had a great hold on the culture, even for the last uh, uh, 10, 20 years. He hasn't written a musical for a long time. Um, and I was wondering about that. I mean, uh, and what keeps him so current? And the answer, of course, is his revivals, which have been successful. Uh, and it, you've contrasted with a situation uh, like Philip Roth, you know, who's a similar talent, a similar impact. But Philip Roth, like Sondheim, stopped his craft 10 or 15 years before he died. Um, and But he faded into obscurity because people don't really go back to those novels in the same way they recreate these shows. So Sondheim became a, was a huge cultural figure right up to the end. So the Times include just a couple of lyrics, and I like the lyrics that they include in their main obituary, so I'll just close with that. Well, wait a minute. What? Before you do that. Yes. Okay. Uh, I just want to say, you know, I was late coming to... The Sondheim party. Yeah. Um, but what I have all loved about Sondheim immediately was his ability to just capture the nuances of life and yeah. the, the sort of the contradictions, the tensions. And uh, he seemed to be understanding so many times exactly how I was feeling. And, uh, and, and when I'm listening to these songs and watching these stories, I'm thinking... Well, Sondheim went through that, too. And, of course, he always denied that. You know, certain, uh, they talk about uh, anyone can whistle as being sort of uh, autobiographical, and he would scoff at that notion. But, but true or not, he really seemed to capture the complexity of life during this period of time. So I think so many people... Can relate, and and it was a messy picture. It wasn't all happy endings. No. Um, it was complicated, and he was complicated. The music was complicated, uh, and uh, that still well, resonates. It's, it's brilliant me. lyrics, and it does capture sort of, as you put it, the uh, tensions, paradoxes uh, of life in, in a kind of a unique, kind of brilliant way, in just a few words. And it does it in a way that pairs beautifully with the music. So it's right, it, and it's, it's sophisticated music. Well, they do have he he seriously studied music. They, they, um, yeah. Oh so. yes, he studied with Milton Babbitt, I think, at a certain point. Yeah. Um, in any event, they did have a lyric from "Anyone Can Whistle," which was not a successful play, but they had some interesting lyrics. Uh, and they also they closed with lyric, uh, the phrase "finishing the hat." is often associated with Sondheim, and that's one of his signature songs, in which uh, the character, um, what is it, uh, Sunday in the Park with George, George Surratt, so we can bring it back to art, and uh, he's singing the song Finishing the Hat about the fact that he's facing the loss of the woman he loves because of his devotion to painting, his superseded his devotion uh, to the woman. And this is the lyric, I'm not going to sing it, but the great thing about Sinai is his music kind of gives you the phrasing, and this is the way it goes. And when the woman that you wanted goes, you can say to yourself, well, I give what I give. But the woman who won't wait for you knows that however you live, there's, all, there's a part of you always standing by, mapping out the sky, finishing a hat, starting on a hat, finishing a hat, look, I made a hat, where there never was a hat. So, in, in any event, uh, yeah, genius, fantastic. And, uh, and we certainly we'll, those we'll, shows. Uh, miss him. Yeah. But uh, we'll keep uh, humming his unhummable tunes. Yes. No doubt about <laughs> exactly. that. Exactly. All right. So, All right. So, this has been a great broadcast, if a hectic one. 
Uh, with, On behalf with, of all the hats here. Yes. Yeah, so, okay. That we've made. With the whirling dervishes who uh, kept their eyes darting around the entire time. And we wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. Yes, as happy as ours. Uh, Dan Abbey off in Tampa Ranger. See you next week.